Lord, we are um, in awe of who you are. This Christmas season, of course, Lord, is a, an opportunity for us to be mindful of your incarnation. And Lord, as we celebrate that with, uh, with lights and trees and tinsel and sharing of gifts and spending time together as family, Lord, which is right and appropriate, we want to remember um, that you are the light of the world. And so this morning, Lord, I ask that you would Give us a fresh awareness of something that we already know to be true in theory, but Lord, that we would see afresh that would strengthen us and encourage us, and uh, Lord, help us to uh, truly reflect during this Christmas season about the wonder of you shattering the darkness and and bringing, Lord, a, a freshness to those who would believe. Oh, Lord, you are a great God. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. And what we have not, Lord, would you give us. Allow me, as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to you in the proclamation of your word. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, some of you may know that coming this July through August, is the Olympic Games to be held in Paris, France. And as is usually the case, the Games are opportunities for wonderful stories, from gymnastics to tennis, basketball to badminton, swimming to ping pong, soccer to Greco-Roman wrestling, and that's probably one of the um, actual events that took place in the origins of the Olympic Games. Originally, it was called the Panhellenic Games and took place in the first century B.C. between the city-states of Greece, and it lasted for about five days. And the games were so important that peace in the form of a truce was established so that people could gather together and there would be a freedom to, to celebrate through these games. And although the Greeks did not use torches as part of their games, or they did use it, but it wasn't until the 11th Olympic Games in 1936, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, that the torch ceremony began. It's kind of an interesting fact, isn't it? It is said that Hitler, then the Chancellor of Germany, wanted to connect the historical Olympic Games to the superiority of the Aryan race. And so he brought the flame from Greece using 3,300 runners. And they went from Greece to Bulgaria, to Yugoslavia, to Hungary, to Austria, to Czechoslovakia, and finally to Germany where the games were being held. It was quite a statement. And today the torch is lit in Olympia and taken to wherever the venue is, and it's a symbol of goodwill fair play, and togetherness. And ultimately, it shines as the games begin and remains aflame until the end of the ceremonies when it is extinguished. But during the games, it shines to light up the world and to remind all who are watching of a truce for the sake of humanity. I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a cry going on there, isn't there? There's a desire for this peace to be present. 
A desire to say no more wars, no more suffering, no more getting at each other. Can we not just get along, at least for a number of days? And then we can get fighting again. And but friends, there's another light that has come, that has been shining, and it is a symbol that we find that is not new. It's a, an old symbol that's found in the Old Testament that flashes into the New Testament and ultimately is present for us today. And it's a symbol that we find Jesus using to describe himself to the Pharisees, to those that are in attendance where he is present in the temple, and also to us here this morning. You see it there in verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's in this title, friends, that we have an impact here for this Christmas season. Because as you look around in most places here in the church, we have some trees. We kind of, you know, we're not kind of like over the top with our Christmas decorations. But we have some here to remind us of a few things. You probably set up, you know, uh, decorations in your home. And part of that decoration is to light a tree or to have lights or candles and stuff. And some of you have homes where you have bushes that are all covered with lights and trees that have dangling lights. And then you probably will go out tonight somewhere and you'll drive through neighborhoods to look at what? Lights. Because this whole theme of light is central to this Christmas season, but it's also central to the Christmas message, in particular, the gospel message that Jesus has come to give light. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So my proposition this morning, could put it a number of ways, but here is how I'm drawing it all together. Jesus came into the darkness in order to be the light that gives life to those who believe. If you remember the theme uh, recorded for us or the, the key that's given to us by John himself is I'm giving you evidence so that you will believe and in believing you will have life. And so you find this theme of life throughout John's gospel. And here we have Jesus, the light of the world, who is coming to give you or so that we will have the light of life. Now, we have to understand, first of all, the setting of what's taking place here uh, in order to get the impact of what's going on with this section of Scripture. First, I want you to see in your text John's commentary in, in verse 20. There he says, these words, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, John isn't just kind of like, you know, I'll just kind of say this out here. He could have said a number of different things. He is giving us a clue. He's helping us see there's something about this setting that is important for this declaration. All right? That's the first thing I want you to notice. This is the temple treasury. This is where the people would come to offer their gifts in the temple. Secondly, I want you to notice in verse 12, the word again. Right? Again, 
Jesus spoke to them, saying. He has been speaking to them since chapter 7. And this is all happening here in the context of the temple, and it's a time of celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrated God's provision for his children during their wilderness wanderings, a time when he provided bread from heaven and water from a rock. And as the week-long festival went on, there were two particular ceremonies that took place, one in the morning, one at night. In the morning of every day, a water-drawing ceremony took place where they would leave the temple, and they would, with an entourage of people, priests, singers, they would go to the Pool of Siloam, they would draw water in golden pitchers, and they would return to the temple where this water was poured over the altar of sacrifice. So you have this wonderful symbolic ceremony reminding the people of Jesus who ultimately would be the water of life. But God's provision of water while the people of Israel were in this wilderness wandering. And so it's likely that during that ceremony, Jesus says, John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But in the evening, there's a second ceremony that takes place. And it was likely repeated every night until the end of the ceremony. Two to four huge lamps were lit in the courts of the temple that were so bright that it lit up the whole of the city. I can only kind of imagine them to be something like the, you know, the Batman beacon. You know what I'm talking about? Or it used to be, you don't see it too much anymore, but you know like where airport appliance or Home Depot was going to have some kind of a sale, they'd have these spotlights that would go up and you're like, oh, what's happening there? It, like, it was like that, but these four beacons shone into the city, bright. Here's how these ceremonies are described in the Jewish Mishnah, which is the collection of interpretation of the Jewish law. It says, he who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in his life seen joy. It's a time of incredible celebration. Men of piety and good works dance through, through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. All of this accompanied by this Levitical orchestra. It's hard for us to imagine, because we, we think back then, oh, people were unrefined, right? But incredible order, incredible ceremonies, incredible uh, singing, and, 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 and just beautiful things happening among the people as they are celebrating this ceremony. So it was a time when all attention in Jerusalem was on the temple. It was a time of great remembrance and celebration and joy and gladness. And it is a time when Jesus breaks through saying, I am the light of the world. And John records this text so that we will literally see the light. I mean, if you could, if this was like a scratch and sniff Bible, you know what I'm talking about? You would be smelling some smoke here. You'd be smelling the sulfur. You'd be smelling the heat and the light if you could do that. He wants us to see all this happening in the background. As Jesus says, 
I am the light of the world. See, he wasn't somehow you know, in an obscure placing, place making a claim. He's standing in this central, uh, significant ceremony with the shining lights of these beams. And he says, I am the light of the world. So he wants us to see the light in all his glory so that we too will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. So we're going to look at three points that kind of flesh out this proposition. First of all, being the light. Secondly, rejecting the light. Third, following the light. Being the light, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I, I, I am the light of the world. Now, why is light important? I was thinking about this and I was reminded of when I was a younger father with four kids living at home and waking up in the middle of the night or actually early in the morning, still being dark. I was often the first to get up during that time. And I remember one of the things I had to do was quietly get up so I didn't wake anyone up and then try and make my way from our bedroom, which is upstairs, down the stairs and into the kitchen so I could begin to make some coffee because we all know that's the most important thing when you wake up in the morning. So I would slowly and carefully and quietly get out of my, you know, my bedroom, close the door carefully, hoping that I wasn't waking my wife up. And then once out of the room, I began to go down the stairs. But of course, having four kids, there were often obstacles on the stairs. You know what I'm talking about. So carefully, I would traverse my way down the stairs, trying you know, to avoid those things that the night fairies had put out in my way, knowing that I would get up. So I'm grabbing the stair railing, and of course, I had to deal with two cats. We had two cats. They were called Timon and Pumbaa. I know. Yes, we did. That's what their names were. And they were always living on the edge of death on the stairs, especially in the morning, because I'm trying to step over them and around them, but it was dark, and I couldn't see. And then, of course, you realize it's only when it's dark that somehow your stairs gain an extra step, Right? or lose a step, one of those two things, which is probably one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you when it's dark. And then you continue trying to work your way down there, and then you find that there are shoes left by some little people at the bottom of the stairs that you're trying to avoid. Finally getting by them, I can stub my toe on the piano bench that's just around the corner, and if that doesn't get me, it's the door to the closet where we keep our jackets. This is all happening in the darkness, and I'm sure you can relate. If only I could turn the light on, I could avoid all those things. Now, can you imagine what life would be like if there was no light? Light is important because it is there. Um, without it, there is only darkness, and ultimately there is only death. It is darkness and as a result of that darkness, we would have the inability to see. We wouldn't be able to see our environment. We wouldn't be able to see each other's. We wouldn't know our features. We'd know what we look like. We wouldn't see the beauty of what's around us. We wouldn't be able to understand the written word. Couldn't see. And as a result, also death would take place because many things that are alive, if not most things that are alive, need light in order to stay alive. 
And we're fortunate that part of God's creation is the sun and the moon. I know we have kind of, you know, pagan things that say, well, the moon is full, things happen. There is something up to that. When the moon is full, people feel freer to do certain things. Why? Because they can navigate in the darkness. But there's a blessing to have the sun and the moon. So truly light is necessary for life. And this account speaks directly to John's purpose for his gospel, evidence that Jesus is God that leads to belief that bears fruit in life. So having asked the question, why is light so important? Now the question is, what is darkness? Do we even see the darkness as darkness? Or do we see it as light? I remember a number of years ago, um, going up to Calaveras County, up there, there are some caverns that you can go into. And I remember going into Mercer Caverns. I think it was with the elders on one of our retreats. And they took us down and down and down. And we really felt like we were you know, in the bottom of the earth, in the abyss, so to speak. And then the guide said, hey, I'm going to do something. I'm going to turn the lights off. Is everyone ready for it? And he turned the lights off. And you couldn't see anything. And he left it off for quite a while. You couldn't see any stalagmites or stalactites, as beautiful as they are. Couldn't see them. Couldn't see the water dripping from the ceiling down to the floor. Couldn't see the person in front of you that was laughing and trying to figure things out because it was so dark. Literally, you put your hand in front of your face and you could not see it. Even as you had time for your eyes to adjust, you could not see a thing. And friends, it is in this sense that Jesus uses this metaphor of darkness because it represents for us a blindness about what is around us, the evil and the sin that is around us. We can't see it, although it's right there before us. It speaks to the hatred bound up in mankind toward the light because the light exposes their sinful works. He, he loves his own sin, and so he can't even see, doesn't want to see because he hates what is there. And the third thing there, it's a condition of mankind who is separated from God. Separated from God. God is holy. And we are not. We are in darkness. But without the light, we can't even see that we're in darkness. We can't even see that we're in bondage to the sin. We can't even see the, the, the works of evil that have us in their grip. John 3, 19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Friends, only Jesus penetrates this world to show us that we are living in darkness, that we're actually blind to the true light. And this is why I asked the question, do we even see the darkness as darkness? <laughs> I think many times in the world, people are happy to see the darkness as if it's light, 
As if being separated from God is a wonderful thing. As if you're okay with it. Denying even that they are in bondage to the darkness of sin and evil. Without the light of Christ, we would remain in darkness and be without life. So why is light important? Why is, well, what is darkness? Here's the third thing. Jesus' claim of being light. And notice just in a little bit more detail, and this is one of the, the times when it's good to, to practice one of the, I want to say, hermeneutical tools here of looking carefully and putting an emphasis on a particular word. First of all, Jesus says, I am the light. In other words, he is equal to the light. It is what he says he is. It is his very essence. I am the light. This is who I am. Secondly, I am the light. In other words, I am the only light. I am the exclusive light. There is no other being that can claim to be the light. I am it. And then I am the light. I expose man's sin. I reveal the heart of God. I guide the children of God. I bring confidence. Here, Jesus is not equating himself with the sun and the moon or the stars. He's referring to the light of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Again, these four candelabras, these four uh, um, shining uh, lights that are shining bright and lighting up the sky, coming through the windows. Jerusalem just seeing this wonderful light coming from the temple. This artificial light is this memorial of Israel's wilderness wanderings that point to the presence of the pillar of the cloud and of fire. Then he says, I am the light of the world. Again, now we, we, we hear this so much, but we don't understand how offensive this was to the people that he's talking to. These were the Jews. In their eyes, the Messiah was uniquely for them. that they were God's unique possession. But Jesus wasn't saying, I'm the light of Jerusalem. He wasn't saying, I'm the light of Israel. He's saying, I'm the light of the world. And friends, the message still rings true. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that shines in the darkness with a message of love, of hope, and reconciliation through the gospel. We sang about this this morning We've talked about it already this morning. And in fact, most of you, if you're God's children, already know this to be true. But friends, refresh yourself to see Jesus is the light of the world. He came not just to be a baby in a manger, but to be the light of the world. Secondly, not only being the light, but now rejecting the light. And this is the, the largest section of our text. And what we find here are the Pharisees. And Jesus has already been interacting with the Pharisees. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But as the, the Pharisees listen to what Jesus is saying, they now respond to him. They reject what he's saying, and they seek to discredit his testimony. So like any guilty and unscrupulous people 
They take decisive measures. They've already done this, chapter 7, verse 1, and verse 44. They're, they're trying to eliminate him. They're trying to kill him. Secondly, in chapter 7, verses 52 through 8, 11, they're trying to discredit his character with clever questions regarding the woman caught in adultery, right? They're, they're just trying to destroy him, to paint him as something that he's not. And now here, seek, they seek to dismiss his claim on a technicality. In other words, something may be true, but we're not going to receive it as true because we have a technical legal response to what you're saying. They say to him, verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Well, how can they say your testimony is not true? It doesn't matter what the content is, because according to them, the law says you have to have two or three witnesses in order for testimony to be received as true. See, they're, they're, they're working on a technicality here. So how will Jesus respond to their arrogant accusation and quick dismissal? Well, before we get there, ask yourself the question here. Think about it this way. Mankind, faced with all the evidence of the historical Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, naturally wants to dismiss him to dismiss his claims. They say he's not the Messiah, but maybe he's just one of those Jewish revolutionaries who failed to overthrow Rome. Have you heard that one before? It's just like so many. There were a lot of guys who did try and you know, rally the troops, and we have record of that. Jesus is just another one of those guys. Or maybe he's not the Messiah, but he's the beloved rabbi whose followers made him out to be more than he was. That's what the Gospels are. They're all just fabricated stories about this Jesus that you want to somehow pretend was this great person. Or he's not the Messiah, but a good teacher, a prophet. Or he's not the Messiah, but a man who was an activist for the poor and for the marginalized, who was willing to die for what he believed. He was so courageous. You say he's not the Messiah. Jesus isn't the reason for the season. Don't you know that Christianity is a pagan holiday? See, those who reject the light will claim all sorts of reasons for dismissing him. But that doesn't mean that what Jesus is saying isn't true. They're not willing to actually look at the evidence. I'm actually willing to consider what has been revealed. The historical evidence is the reason why we have four Gospels. One of the reasons is that we can pull four witnesses who walked with Jesus, who spent time with Jesus, who were present as eyewitness observers of things that happened, or were there talking to people who were eyewitnesses, gathering this data together to show that what is being said is actually true. So how will Jesus respond to their accusation or their quick dismissal? Well, I want you to notice that between verses 13 and 17, this Greek word, marturio, I bear witness or I bear testimony is used seven times. So simply, I'm just going to kind of walk through it simply. Here it is. He says, my knowledge is superior, but you are ignorant. Look, if you would, please, at verse 14. 
This should be up on the screen right now. My knowledge is superior or you are ignorant. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. He says, my knowledge is superior. You don't know, but I do. Secondly, my testimony is impartial, or your judgment is tainted, because you judge according to the flesh. Look what it says in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet if, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In other words, I'm not the only one who is making a judgment if you want to say that I'm judging you. I'm impartial. I have my Father who, who works with me, who, and I, I can make a, a judgment that is right, that is true. Third, my witness is corroborated. Again, speaking about the Father. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Aha! So there are two forms of testimony. My testimony and the Father's testimony. You say, well, what's the big deal here? Go back to chapter 5, if you would, please. Chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Because what Jesus is, is saying here is not said kind of independent of everything else. He has already been interacting with the Pharisees. This is an ongoing story. This is an ongoing uh, revelation. And again, if you look at John chapter 5, you're going to find three witnesses to the fact that Jesus is bearing testimony and that it is true. Look, if you would, beginning at verse 30. This is what Jesus says. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Does that sound familiar? There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive from is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He says the first testimony, apart from myself, is John, John the Baptist, who came testifying. In fact, if you continue reading verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining what? Lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while at his light. <laughs> See, this is, this is not like, you know, what we read in chapter 8 is not isolated. He's building here on what he's already said. You have the testimony of John the Baptist. He continues on here. Verse, uh, verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, his words and his signs, the miracles he's performing, the things that he's doing to help people. And it continues on, talks about the Scriptures, verse 39. And you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have what? 
life. See, Jesus is not speaking in a vacuum. These things are all connected. When he says, I am the light of the world, and my light will give you life, he's building what, on what he's already said. And the Pharisees, already having heard these words of testimony, are still wanting to get rid of him and dismiss him and dismiss his claim. Friends, here is one of the harsh realities of life. John 1, 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Even when the light shines, men are still left in darkness and are blind to the joy and the truth of life that comes only through Christ. History is full of examples of men and women living under the ray of gospel light who through their rejection continue, continue to walk in darkness and spiritual blindness. Let me just mention a few of them. And you like, it's such a sad story. Hugh Hefner was raised in the pastor's home. Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood. Mao Zedong was raised under the teaching of missionaries. But the light of Christ, although shining brightly, remained darkness to them because they rejected it. They dismissed it. They rationalized it away. Now, light doesn't need a witness. It is its own witness. Now, how is that true? Well, if you remember the stories of Second World War in London, um, when they knew that Germany was attacking, they would tell everyone, you know, cover up your windows, turn all of your lights off, because one, one little flashlight could give them an anchor point to drop their bombs. All you need is a little bit of light to give evidence, to show what is there. It is its own witness. So, being the light, rejecting the light, and now we come to following the light. Jesus begins with this claim that he is the light of the world. That claim results in a conflict with the Pharisees, and now we want to see the comfort that he gives to those who do follow him. Let's go back to verse 12 again. And it says, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. That's what we saw in point one. Now we're focusing on the second part. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So these words are both a comfort and a promise. Whoever follows, literally, whoever continues to follow and keeps continuing to follow, two things will be true. They will not walk in darkness, and they will have the light of life. And remember, with the background of, of these four lamps shining from the temple behind Jesus, blazing over his shoulders, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's identifying himself as the lamp of the Feast of Tabernacles, which in turn is a remembrance of the light of the pillar of cloud 
and fire that accompanied the children of Israel while they were in their wilderness wanderings. And so as we go back now to that time in Israel's history, there's four things that we can see about the effect and the importance of this pillar of fire and cloud. Now you can follow along if you want to back in the Old Testament, but uh, I want you to notice first of all, this pillar of fire and cloud demonstrates God's power. Imagine getting up every day and kind of stepping out of your tent because they were wilderness wanderers, if you remember, and looking up and seeing a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You always saw God's power, his Shekinah glory on display. If that were to happen today, people would stop. People would stop on the freeway. They'd be pulling out their phones. They'd be taking pictures of it. They would call, be calling for the UFO people to come or whatever, right? It would be huge. It would be significant because there's this pillar of fire in the middle of the night just there flaming and shining and glowing and then this cloud that was hovering. So you see the power of God on display in, in a really diminished way, but for us as human beings in a magnificent way. That's Numbers 9. And look at and verse 16 says, So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance by fire. Day after day after day in the wilderness, God, Jesus, was reminding the people of Israel, I'm a powerful God. And if you think about the story of the Exodus, his power was on display over and over and over again, wasn't it? And they needed to be reminded of God's power. Friends, whatever situation you're in during this Christmas season, whatever trial or difficulty or heartache you have gone through, remember God's power is still present for you who believe. Why? Because he is the light of the world. And his power goes with you. He's not powerless. Now, he's sovereign. He's not there like your genie to do whatever you want him to do. You know, like those people cut me off, go sick them, right? That's not what God does. But he is powerful to accomplish what he wants to do in and through your life, even through trial, even through difficulty. His power is on display. Secondly, his presence. And this is Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 through 22. Here's what it says. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. If I were to pull you, you know, what's one of your favorite attributes or truths about God, I pretty much guarantee top five, someone's going to say that the Lord is always with us. Can you imagine what it would be like if he wasn't with them? The fact that he was as a cloud and a pillar of fire reminded the people, not only is he powerful, but he is with them. He is there when they stop. He's there when they get up. He's there when enemies come to attack. He is 
with them. He promises never to leave or to forsake his children. Why? Because he's the light of the world that gives life to those who believe. Third, not only God's power and his presence, but God's protection. Exodus 14, 19 through 20. Then the angel of of God, that would be Christ, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the uh, the other all night. In other words, the, the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire not only were there to show God's power and his presence, but they were there to protect the children of God. And Jesus, as the light of the world, comes to protect those who are his own. If you have life in Christ, you have his protection. That doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen. It means that whatever is happening is all part of God's awareness and understanding and care. His protection, his presence, his power. And the final one here is simply God's guidance. Because when the the cloud lifted up or the fire lifted up, it would go in a certain direction. The people of God would would, tear down their, their, their tents and they would begin to follow where the the cloud or the fire was going. And so being in the wilderness, as you know, was a confusing journey. It took them how many years to travel? Forty years. Now we understand there's some punishment, there's some all that kind of stuff going on there, but they're wandering in there, and God was leading them to places so that they could have the provisions that they needed. Now friends, it is only because Jesus is the light, the pillar of cloud and fire, that God's people experience the powerful presence of God to protect and to guide them. And friends, the same is true for us. That's why Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He gives you wisdom. He gives you direction. He gives you guidance. He gives you counsel. He shows you how he wants you to live. And of course, the means by which he does that is through his word. So therefore, we have this visual of the pillar of cloud and fire in our minds to give us a mental reminder that Jesus is the light of the world who is with us in his power to protect and guide us as we journey through this life and into heaven. He is the bread of life, we're told. He's the water of life. He is the the light of life. But we're also told he's the tree of life. He's the crown of life. The bottom line is this. Life is found in in Jesus Christ. And it's just being hammered at us through John's gospel. Dennis will be talking about that next week. We can't get away from it because it's there in so many of these texts. Therefore, following the light means a number of things. I just jotted these things down. Knowing the light. It means loving the light. It means trusting the light. It means submitting to the light. It means obeying the light. It means reflecting the light. As we kind of bring things to a close here, 
I want us to consider how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 5. You might want to turn your Bibles there and just hold them there for a bit. I remember a number of years ago, it was in the middle of winter, probably around 6 o'clock or so at night, and power went off. I don't know if you remember, there was a season when it seemed like our power was going off in different places and different communities. And it went off. And so, all right, what are we going to do? I mean, it was really, really dark. And you kind of realize, wow, you know, it's really dark. And what do we do? And I, all right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to find our flashlights. And we keep our flashlights in a utility room downstairs. And so I go in there and I open the cupboard. And we have probably about five or six flashlights there. There's this large yellow flashlight. You know what I'm talking about. It's a big clunky type of a thing. We have a camping flashlight that's kind of like a, like a lantern, but it's like battery powered and it's, it does this flashing thing and it changes the, the extent of the glow and that kind of stuff. We have some small flashlights, more like a collection of flashlights we've used through the years um, when we went camping or just because we had them, maybe kept them in the car. And then we had this heavy duty flashlight, you know, big honking thing, right? Something you could kill someone with, right? I mean, that kind of a heavy duty flashlight. Well, as I pulled each one out of the cupboard, I tried to turn them on. The large yellow flashlight didn't work. Why? Because I had a giant battery and it was dead. All right? Nope, that one's not going to work. I pull out the camping flashlight and it wouldn't work had the batteries, but for some reason it just wouldn't turn on. No flickering, no flashing, no lights. And then the small flashlights, I opened them up, and there were batteries, but they were all nasty, you know what I'm talking about. And then some of them didn't even have any bulbs in them. So I was like, all right, I can't use those. So my only hope was the heavy-duty flashlight, which, of course, boasted that you could let it sit for months and it would turn on automatically and shine up the world where you live. It said something like that, I'm sure, on the cover of it. But again, it wouldn't work. Why? Because I had failed to put any batteries in it or to have any batteries near it. In fact, when I went to our battery collection, which is not in that same cupboard, which is in the kitchen, and you have to get a stool to climb up and get the batteries up there. I had doing all that. None of the batteries fit. So here we were doomed to darkness, and started to light as many candles as we could. Then I remembered something that I had received, a white elephant gift exchange that I thought, oh, what a, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, it's kind of a throwaway gift. And it was a pencil flashlight. And I had stuck it in my drawer, in my desk, in my office, and so I was like, ah, so I ran upstairs, and sure enough, I had to find the scissors and cut it out, and boom, 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 put it in, and sure enough, boom, then it worked. So I finally had the light that I needed. Now, friends, the truth is I hadn't been prepared to counter the darkness with the light. Because we always take the light for granted. Now, my question to you as we bring this to a close is this. Are you prepared to live your life as children of light? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Ephesians 5, verse 8. And we're picking it up in a discussion here about how he deals with the world. But this is what he says about us. At one time, you were darkness. 
but now you are light in the Lord. And you can put the word in there, therefore, walk as children of light. You see, Jesus is the light, but as his children, in a sense, we're little lights. And we live our lives with him guiding us, but he is also calling us to be children of that light. And there's three ways that we can do that as we bring things to a close here. Number one, I want to encourage you here during our Christmas season to meditate on the light. As you sit down around the Christmas tree and you look at the lights, as you drive in neighborhoods and look at the the wonderful displays of people wasting their electricity and stuff like that, be reminded here or ask yourself the question, why are these lights even present? I know it's become somewhat of a pagan holiday, right? People who are unbelievers celebrating Christmas and they have all these things, but Who or what are these lights pointing to? And of course, you know the answer. And then take time to reflect. Maybe as you're sitting down tomorrow before you're opening all the presents, maybe just you by yourself or maybe you with your family, ask yourself the question or these questions. How does Jesus break into the pages of Scripture? Where is he present in the Old Testament and the New Testament showing himself, putting himself on display as the light? We began our service with one of those passages in the Old Testament. How many times do we have this foreshadowing or this promise of this coming Messiah? Maybe read through Luke 24 to hear what Jesus says about, you know what? I am present in the law and the Psalms and the prophets. He's there. But do we see him? As you, as you look at your tree, you see all these different lights. Think of them as, as all evidences of who Jesus really is that come straight from the Word of God, that, that are beaming, so to speak, out of the pages of God's Word. This Bible is not just a historical book. It's a book about the light. It's a book about Christ. So meditate on the light. Secondly, having meditated on the light, embrace the light. As the light of Christ shines in your heart, he may be exposing sin that you're in bondage to. And he's not doing it to discourage you, but pointing you to the life that is found in him. He wants you to experience the light or the life that is rooted in in the light. This light is there to expose your sin, but it's there also to show you a new way, to show you the right path, to show you that that true satisfaction is found in Him. He's reminding you that He is with you in your trial, in your struggle, in your difficulty, whatever it is you're going through. His presence, His power, His protection, His guidance. So don't run for the light or run from the light. Welcome it. Love it. Long for it. And the character of Jesus is not to somehow come in and say, I'm the light. Look, see, sin, 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 sin. 
the character of Jesus say, there's some sin there, but here's how you can be restored. There's some sin here. Here's how you can be restored. There's some sin here. Here's how you're restored. Now, we know that when we come to Christ as new believers, our sin is all paid for. But as we're believers, we do continue to sin. We, we kind of break that relationship with him. He's wanting to restore that relationship. He's wanting to grow that relationship. So, so embrace the light. Don't fight it. Now, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to hear the truth of the light. But he's giving you truth to draw you back to him. Meditate on the light. Embrace the light. Third, obviously, shine the light. Others need the light of Christ to bring life. We're called to shine the light of Christ in the midst of darkness. So continually shine the light in your family, in your neighborhood, uh, among your acquaintances, pointing to Jesus as the light of life. Now, you may do that verbally, and I would encourage you as opportunity arises to, to do it verbally, but you also do it by your example of life. How you're putting your trust in Him during a difficult time. How you're making decisions that really are honoring Him and other people are seeing it, they're observing it. You're reflecting the character and the beauty and the wonder of Christ in the way that you live. So live in such a way that the light of Christ can be reflected for others to see. Friends, Jesus came into the darkness in order to be the light that gives life to those who believe. He came to give light so that you and I would live. Think about that as you look at your Christmas tree that is dying. But you have been given life everlasting because you are in the Lord. Lord, help us today. Lord, even as we celebrate this Christmas season, Lord, a right thing to do to in our hearts and minds be mindful of this wonderful image, metaphor that Jesus uses to describe himself and the impact of himself on this world, and in particular, in our hearts. Lord, we're thankful, incredibly thankful, that we are no longer walking in darkness. But Lord, are we thankful that we are living a life that is fueled by you who is the light? Do we love your light, Lord? Do we love your presence? Do we love the way that you seek to, to work in us and to grow us? Lord, help us to meditate on you. Help us to embrace you. And Lord, help us to reflect you to those who are around us, Lord. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.